Hi, I'm Tiffany McDonald, Senior Advisor at Global Council. I bring 20 years diplomatic experience focused on strategic dynamics in Asia and trade policy. Noting in the context of contested times, COVID, recovery, war in Ukraine, food and energy crisis, inflation, we've seen numerous leader-level summits take place in Asia, ASEAN held in Cambodia, G20 in Bali, and APEC in Thailand. Today, I'm joined by my Global Council colleagues, John Garvey. John leads Global Council's international policy practice and has more than 15 years of government experience working across the UK, EU and multilateral policy developments and negotiations. And my Singapore-based colleague, Didi Donato, who is an associate in Global Council's Singapore office and has worked extensively on Southeast Asian politics, written about Indonesian politics and economy and has two-track diplomacy experience at the ASEAN Study Centre at the University of Gajamata. And we have our special guest today, Hafimi Haidi, who is the Executive Director of LVK Group of Companies, a third-generation entrepreneur, member of Brunei's APEC Business Advisory Council, chairperson of Brunei's Competition Commission, Uh, and has been a member of Brunei's Legislative Council, in addition to being an avid supporter of youth, women's and social enterprise. She has one of the most impressive set of contacts I've come across and is joining us uh, from Brunei today. Thank you, Hafimi. And like me, Hafimi, I just wanted to note that the views expressed by yourself and myself today are our personal views and not of the governments that we have represented. As I've just mentioned, we've just finished the ASEAN summits in Cambodia, G20 in Bali, Indonesia and APEC in Thailand. And today we're going to talk about the implications of these summits and various leader level meetings and what this means from the perspective in Asia, and then drill down into the broader implications of this uh, for the UK and Europe. But before we launch into the discussion about the substance of the summits, I'd just like to, to get a bit of context. Hofimi, you were on the ground in Bangkok for APEC can you give us a bit of a flavour of what it was like in Thailand uh, and, and tell us a bit more about the atmospherics and the dynamics of the meetings, just to frame our, our further discussions? Uh, thanks, Tiffany. And again, thank you for, to Global Council for, for having me on board. As initially stated, uh, a lot of what uh, we've seen uh, within the region has, has been dramatically changed, obviously post-COVID and obviously post the global challenges that are still happening um, even till today. Um, first and foremost, I guess on the positive, um, it was great to see colleagues and friends in a real life setting um, after enduring pretty much three years of not having face-to-face meetings. I think there was a lot of enthusiasm in the air, but at the same time, an understanding of the realities that's happening on the ground. There is definitely tension with uh, global challenges still facing the broad spectrum of all 21 APEC economies. And I think that was an overhanging cloud, but nothing, uh, as they say, can be overcome if you don't deal with it. So I think our host, Thailand, did a very good job in trying to pull um, all APEC economies together. The great thing about it is that we actually walked away with a leader's declaration. This is something that has not been achieved even pre-pandemic for several years now. So I think that's probably one positive that you can take away from from the APEC summit itself. Uh, From business leaders, there is definitely a lot of challenges still coming ahead. Globally, we are still faced with high inflation. There is anticipation of, indeed, 
uh, repercussions in what's been going on with effects to the global value chains, to supply chains, to the, the, the crises that are still embattling certain sectors of the world and what is to come ahead. So I think in, 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 a, in a big context of APEC this year was the fact that it was a positive move to bring leaders together, but at the same time, the global challenges are still ahead of it, still in front of us. And it's something for us to, to, to sort of work on as we lead into next year's US year in 2023. Uh, but that's, that's the context in, in, in broad strokes, Tiff, that I can, that I can give. Yeah, and sending through um, some selfies with various world leaders, Hafimi. I think that point that you make about the world being very different um, to the last time the face-to-face meetings happened is a really valid one. If you think back 2019, very different, very different time. COVID hadn't happened. We hadn't seen uh, Russia's uh, war in Ukraine take place, the supply chain uh, disruptions, the global food and energy crisis, all of those things were not issues that leaders had to grapple with uh, when they last met face-to-face and that idea that their enthusiasm and just having the opportunity to, to meet face-to-face uh, is one that we shouldn't uh, forget, uh, but also how how complex the challenges are uh, that, and how different the world is now. Uh, now that we've set that backdrop, thanks, Hafimi. Didi, can I turn to you uh, and ask you about the areas of sort of shared shared consensus but also the points of contention from the view, viewpoint in Southeast Asia? Uh, thank you, Tiffany. I think the most obvious one, uh, if we look at the three summits in Southeast Asia, uh, which is ASEAN Summit in uh, uh, Cambodia, G20 Summit in Bali, and APEC Summit in Bangkok, uh, we can basically find a commonality in terms of the key concern, which is to address a food security issue due to the war in Ukraine. Uh, Southeast Asian countries are looking at how to recover economically after being hit quite devastatingly by the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, uh, all attention is now pointing towards the ongoing war in Ukraine. The key questions are, when will the war end? Will that negatively impact our economy? And even in Indonesia, people are concerned that a pack of instant noodles, which is the most affordable food, is getting thinner in portion due to the rising price and supply shortage of wheat. So at the ASEAN summit next year, I expect that ASEAN member states will likely try to seek common ground in addressing food security issues while involving its uh, external uh, dialogue partners. Yeah, I think that idea that food security in Asia and, and that very tangible illustration of how the disruption to, to food security and the direct link to the war uh, in Ukraine um, is having an impact on, on what is a very much a staple uh, for Southeast Asian uh, diets around instant noodles is a really, uh, it's a really potent and simple example of, of the impacts. And you mentioned also the sort of the Russia's aggression. It's, it's it very much divided within ASEAN. Countries are taking different, different approaches. There's also issues around the South China Sea. But for ASEANs, the, the idea that they bring these uh, leader meetings, bring some of the world's leading um, economies and the leaders uh, around the table, I think is a really important point to remember. Can you just um, drill a little bit down into that to how important ASEAN is uh, to the Southeast Asians, noting that a lot of the 
media attention uh, in the in the in Europe has been around uh, the G20. I think ASEAN as a forum will remain uh, central when we look at the regional dynamics uh, in Southeast Asia. Um, ASEAN is a useful platform for uh, gathering, uh, for communication uh, among ASEAN member states, as well as its external dialogue partners. Uh, but of course, uh, the effectiveness of ASEAN summit is always in question. Uh, at the East Asia summit, um, we expect that Biden and Xi Jinping will find a common ground on South China Sea issue. Uh, but of course, look at Xi Jinping. He asked that South China issue, South China Sea issue must be resolved by only the regional climates. And on the other hand, Biden is proposing idea that South China Sea issue must be resolved involving international uh, partners, including the United States. So in this case, the relevance of ASEAN summit um, is still in question. Uh, but of course, uh, ASEAN summit is a central to the regional dynamics, and it is important to have uh, ASEAN-related meetings going on. Yeah, and if I could just throw to you, Hafimi, also uh, to pick up on uh, on that point, uh, the 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 relevance of ASEAN and the East Asia Summit uh, to the interests of the the Southeast Asian countries. Can you reflect a little on that for us, also? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't I don't always sit within the the ASEAN fora in terms of business, but I think my reflection on what we see is first and foremost. Um, ASEAN as a negotiating entity will always see itself as a consensus block. Um, I think it's also very positive the fact that the Timor-Leste has been already been invited to undertake the process now to be part of ASEAN shows that there is no go there's no going back in terms of negotiation negotiating with ASEAN as a block. It is not to say that ASEAN does not have its own internal challenges, but as with everything. Progress takes time and also progress Progress takes understanding. So as a block, even prior to, to, uh, to the COVID crisis impacting ASEAN, ASEAN as, a, as an economic block in itself was actually trying to establish itself as another source of productivity that it would not be for, for the global market. It was not just reliant now on the one, you know, the one factory Globally, um, ASEAN was actually trying to maneuver itself uh, to be a secondary or a third source of option uh, to be the man to be the manufacturer for for global uh, clients. So I think you'll see that ASEAN, although it moves a little bit slower than other entities, uh, there is a common vision in ASEAN of what they want to achieve, which is economic integration in itself. So the, the benefits of ASEAN uh, in its relationship with our East Asia uh, Summit and Dialogue Partners enables ASEAN to have better leverage, for lack of a better word, a better collective manner to undertake uh, negotiations. So I think ASEAN will never be left behind. But at the same time, ASEAN has also developed this realization that it would it is also codependent within its own membership. That is, it is not so much about what is coming into ASEAN, but there is a bit more of a reflection and an understanding and a deeper appreciation that ASEAN can actually work within itself. If you see the number of unicorns that have come up 
in ASEAN over the past, I would say, five to seven years, the strength of diversity has also brought up a lot of opportunity. And ASEAN is reflecting within itself to actually push that forward a little bit more compared to having uh, to, to putting that East Asia first. It is not to say that East Asia is not important to ASEAN, but ASEAN is also developing its own capacity within itself uh, to grow economically. So I think that's something that's very different. And this is also reflected in the fact that we are all three meetings over the past, all three summits over the past two, two weeks has really uh, come up with bold statements um, and the commonality of enabling sustainability. Oh, absolutely. And I think that if I could just pull out one one of those points around the, the supply chain disruption, and I think that the, the idea that uh, you have a 650 million person economy and in the face of global supply chain disruptions, the opportunities that exist in ASEAN is certainly one that I'm seeing from where I'm sitting in the in the UK uh, a growing realization of of what opportunity that that does present, uh, whether it's technology, as you say, around unicorns, or whether it's uh, in relation to uh, manufacturing opportunities. And and John, that that is a good way uh, entry point for me to to lead uh, over hand over to you, um, picking up on that point about ASEAN centrality and the UK's tilt towards Indo Pacific. Europe's own Indo-Pacific strategy against the backdrop of what we're seeing in discussions around decoupling from from China or at a minimum um, seeking a diversification of market opportunities. John, these these summits were much closer to home for me as an Australian than for, for the European leaders that attended. Can you just talk a little bit more about what these summits mean for the UK and Europe politically uh, and and your thoughts on some of the tangible outcomes uh, going forward? Sure. Thanks, Tiffany. Well, um, I suppose the first thing to say is that you know, this was Rishi, Rishi Sunak's uh, second trip abroad as prime minister after, after going to COP the week before. So it's actually the first time he will have uh, met many of these leaders in person and certainly the first time he will have met them as prime minister so you know as you as you know as a former diplomat it's enormously important to to get the atmospherics right if you like on uh, on those first meetings and also for him um as he said, to sort of demonstrate that the UK is back, if you like, after a fairly rocky period. I think his his words were that the UK's reputation had taken a bit of a knock recently. So I think the first thing that he had to do going into that meeting was just show that he was going to be, uh, if you like, a calming presence um, and steady the ship. And I think uh, I think he did that relatively well. I think he had um, he had successful bilaterals with uh, several other prime ministers. You could see that uh, you could see that the optics, the atmospherics, looked particularly good when he was meeting um, Modi. It looked very good when he was meeting Trudeau. Uh, he's already forged a much better uh, relationship with Macron. So I would say all of that, all of that was fairly positive. Um, the sort of more strategic thing that he that he needed to do, if you like, was sort of signal that the UK's Indo-Pacific tilt, as you as you described it, was uh, still up and running. So. 
I mean, the two the two most significant parts of the UK's Indo-Pacific tilt so far are probably the UK's dialogue status, dialogue um, uh, status as a dialogue member with ASEAN, and then the application to join CPTTP. So um, he would have been pushing both of those as well. In terms of in terms of what European leaders. Uh, were trying to achieve more broadly, and I'm including the UK in this as part of continental Europe, I think the biggest thing to demonstrate was that there was no opening gap over Russia. Um, and again, I think I think that was pretty good. We can we can come back to we can come back to exactly what was and wasn't signaled, but you didn't see uh, any gaps in European unity in the stance was Russia appear during the summit. I think there's much more interesting nuance in terms of the stance towards China, uh, because remember going into this, uh, there was quite a lot of reporting about um, a Franco-German spat in terms of uh, Germany, in effect, going its own way on China. This is in the wake of uh, the German Chancellor Schultz taking a big business delegation to Beijing just a few weeks before this summit, when uh, it was reported at least that originally the idea had been to have a joint Franco-German approach. So definite differences um, in commercial and economic policy towards Asia that you certainly saw foregrounded here. But I think overall for overall for Europe, if you like, the, the biggest thing was to demonstrate unity on Russia. Yeah, thank you. And I think with the G20 statement, you look at the communique, it's up there, the Paros 4 and 5, I think. Uh, so it was clear that the the um, there was a unity to a broad degree around um, concerns uh, around Russia. But you also mentioned the the China piece. This was Xi Jinping's first uh, set of international meetings for a number of years and certainly the first set of meetings he'd had uh, for international meetings that he'd had subsequent to the, the 20th Party Congress uh, where he's secured a third term as president. Um, there was a three-hour G-Biden uh, bilateral that took place in the margins of the G20, much anticipated, their first as, as respective leaders, and uh, early indications that the atmospherics were at least positive uh, and lots more discussion to take place. That said, there's still the CHIPS Act that's uh, been um, launched in the US. There's um, talk of more decoupling even Germany after Chancellor Schultz's visit uh, banned uh, uh, the semiconductor sale and, and similar decisions taking place in the UK. So I'm interested, uh, Didi and Hafimi, perhaps if you could touch on this, how does this US-China competition look like from an Asian perspective? Uh, China is obviously an immediate neighbour. Uh, you can't change geography. Uh, and the US has been a major underwriter of security and balance in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, most countries in Asia don't want to be for, don't want to be forced to choose and have some agency in how that strategic competition plays out. Uh, uh, Didi, can I throw to you first? So uh, I would agree with you that uh, China's uh, economic footprint in the region is more significant compared to the U.S. Um, China is linked with the region through the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP and at the same time continues to promote its Belt and Road Initiative. 
On the other hand, the U.S. engaged the region quite significantly in the security aspect. Uh, one example, we know how the U.S. continues to improve its relationship with the Philippines' new leader, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. But of course, from Southeast Asia, the more interesting aspect is what can China and the U.S. offer to the region. And I think in this part, the U.S. has been lacking in terms of its economic engagement. Uh, but of course, after the midterm elections in uh, the U.S., uh, there is a prospect for greater Washington's economic engagement through the Indo-Pacific economic framework, given the Republican is now controlling the House with a slim majority. Republicans will continue to pressure the Democrats on the importance of market access, a measure that Biden reluctantly wants to consider, even though market access is the most traditional aspect of the free trade agreement that Southeast Asian countries are looking for from IPAF. So there is a chance for Biden to over market access via IPAF, as now he'll be more focused on foreign policy. But this will depend on whether the Republicans can get free trade bill passed in the House with a slim majority. So in a nutshell, uh, the U.S. needs to find ways to balance a Chinese economic cloud in the region while maintaining its role as a major underwriter of security. Thanks, Didi. I think that idea of the uh, focus on the economic engagement is a really important one. IPAF has had uh, its beginnings this year, but without that, uh, the jewel of market access offering. So I think it definitely one for us to continue to be uh, looking at how it develops. Havimi, what about from your perspective? How how do you see that uh, that piece around US-China competition uh, from the vantage point that you have? I think from from if we were to look at it as a member of APEC um, and the fact that for APEC Drive, it is really the free trade region of the Asia Pacific. Now, obviously, wordings and namings, um, you know, Asia Pacific, Indo Pacific, the 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 course is clear that the ultimate aim of all of these groups of regional integration is really to put us forward as a, a big chunk of where the world's trade passes through, both physically and from a rhetoric position as well. You have a huge consumer base with, I would say, half of the world's population, uh, but at the same time also at least 30 to 40% of global GDP occurs in this region. Right? So that's, 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 if that's, pure geographical um, uh, fact, as well as consumer fact. So I think what, what's happening with China, you know, albeit using many, many words, the great decoupling, whatever, I think it also brings a new balance and a fresh approach that we do not also put all eggs in one basket when it comes to uh, how do we supply ourselves, how do we trace our goods, where do we find our markets. I think you'll find a um, you know an interesting spread across the board. One thing I wanted to, to sort of bring to fact is that the APEC CEO summit also presented the first time that a European leader engaged with APEC business leaders. So that is a very pivotal moment. Um, and if I can perhaps quote a little bit of what uh, President Macron said, is that even for, even though France is a European Union, is in the European Union and in Europe it is also an Indo-Pacific nation. So 
you might be thinking, okay, that's so weird. But he, he does bring some fact to that. Um, but he did it from a comparative aspect that the drive of what APEC economies want to do has very has a very similar context to where the European Union has its ideals. That we also that we all work together in a framework that understands and is tied by the rule of law. It also looks at being fair, assuring a fair basis of negotiation, regardless of which economy we are up against. Um, and I think that's something that's very clear, that it is not just about region against region, that we as that we all living in one planet have to be able to work together um, in a basic commonality of global order. So I think things like this resonate, you know, and, and have brought a lot of things to light. The other, the other aspect of it is the fact that we are all in the same level playing field because we are also trying to all rebuild our economies post-pandemic. And I think that cannot be um, ignored, that despite all of the, the saber rattling, despite all of the, in, the, the posturing that you see you know, on the global stage politically, the, what has happened with COVID has really reset the system for every single country and every single economy. Uh, that we have to work together. And I think that's a clear message that has come across in the statements. And earlier, I, I did mention, right, uh, Tiffany, that this is the first time in many, many years that APEC leaders have been able to, to express their views and present um, a leader's declaration. This is very, very significant. It's not even a chair statement. For the past couple of years, we've just been using chair statement. Uh, but the fact that you've been able to have 21 leaders um, come together and agree on a joint leader's declaration is a very positive outcome from, from what has been a very turbulent year, uh, to, you know, to put it in a very short manner. <laughs> and I think, I think that's a really uh, important point that you get the joint leader statement that there's a, a meeting of minds that the, the, the need to work collectively to address these uh, major global challenges uh, definitely seems to be there. The political impetus is there uh, for working together and you touched on the sort of the level playing field and the rules-based order. Uh, the international rules-based order is, is the way that many countries uh, frame, frame their interests and, and indeed has been the sort of the architecture through which we've seen successive uh, years of, of economic growth and prosperity and, and in the broad stability post-World War II. So I think there's a certainly a, a strong strong Im indication that, that countries uh, are committed to making sure that their interests are preserved through the maintenance of those rules. Uh, John, that's a really good point uh, for me to, to throw to you again, because what, what does this all mean for the UK and Europe? Obviously, the US and China are the um, dominant uh, forces when it comes to setting the, the tone of um, the uh, global, global interactions. Uh, Biden and Xi having their bilateral and talking about uh, setting guardrails in that relationship uh, is a stabilising uh, feature, I think, for the more uh, more countries and more talk rather than than less, uh, which is a, is in one sense a, a a a good outcome. But is there a chance that the that those such as the U UK, Europe, or others get 
caught in the in the crosshairs. Uh, the previous U.S.-China Phase One trade deal struck by Trump and Xi, for example, provided some bi- stability in the bilateral relationship, but had knock-on implications for other countries, which weren't all all positive. For example, around the agriculture purchase quotas. How does that how does that play out for um, from where you're sitting? So, so a couple of things in response to that. Um, I mean, I, I suppose the first thing I would say is that I've sensed massive relief across Europe that the Xi Biden meeting was relatively positive. And you know, one of one of the things that came out was that it was only supposed to last two hours, I think, and in the end lasted three, which is obviously a very good sign. Uh, another thing that the White House has briefed out afterwards is that um, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is now going to go to Beijing earlier in the early. In the new year next year, and that there will be uh, there will be further talks on climate, energy, security, and so on. So, as you say, that sort of re-establishment of guardrails is very very positive. Um, there's a really interesting UK angle to this at the moment with the new prime minister in place. I think, um, which is that Sunak has generally been thought of as someone who is going to be more on the emollient side of the conservative spectrum with regard to China. Um, the the assumption is that he he would be much more inclined to put uh, to put economic interests to to prioritise them uh, more than his predecessor would. Um, not necessarily that he would try and go back to the kind of George Osborne era of golden golden age of relations with China, but that he would reset the dial a bit. So he was he was he was asked, um, and this was on the eve of uh, a meeting with Xi, a bilateral meeting at the G20 that was subsequently cancelled. But he was asked whether he considered China a strategic threat or a systemic competitor. And he sort of, he slightly fluffed the language and he basically ended up saying saying both of these things. Immediately after that happened, the China Research Group, which is um, a parliamentary group, Crossbench group with within the UK Parliament, though mainly consisting of Conservatives, put out a statement essentially saying there can be no backsliding on the UK's stance in China. It's clearly a strategic threat, and we will be watching the Prime Minister very closely to see what he does in this area. It's particularly interesting because there is a big crossover between Conservative members of Parliament in that group and Conservative members of uh, the European Research Group, which is essentially the hardline Eurosceptic group within the Tory party uh, that has pushed for no dilution of um, no dilution of the UK's policy on Brexit. So he he will he will have felt the pressure there and that will continue to be brought to bear uh, over over the next year and a half um, of the UK's parliament. Great. Thank you. So I think that it's really interesting to me. What stands out is that while these are global t- challenges, there are so many bilateral equities at stake. Uh, but that there does seem to be a, a, a in the broad uh, meeting of the minds that these summits have been uh, the beginnings of of the uh, global leaders trying to grapple with uh, what are incredibly challenging times. Uh, can I? 
as we start to to wrap up, can I get from each of you some final reflections? Now that the summits are over, what are some of the things that we should look out for? What are the signals of challenges that uh, signals that challenges are being addressed, or what other signs perhaps might tend towards a, a, a further de- deterioration in global relations and therefore trade and investment? Uh, Hafimi, can I throw to you in the first instance where just a, a one minute or so snapshot of what you think are the signals to be looking out for as we move forward? Um, I think very briefly um, to understand, we really need to see where China is headed, how it's going to emerge out of this this stance of zero COVID. Some became a little bit of a COVID bubble themselves. Um, so I think watching China's economy, how it, it, it endures the year will be very interesting to see. Um, at the same time, uh, the U.S. is in their hands now to take the reins and and put some more stability into the global economy. I think we have to watch these two things. Um, and even as, as ASEAN develops itself, they're still in the midst of, you know, again, to put in other words, two elephants trying to stomp around in the jungle and everybody else is trying to keep up with them. Thanks, Tiffany. Two elephants stomping around in the jungle. Well, the the Borneo jungle is a beautiful place. Let's hope they find a way to do it like touch uh, and with our implications, uh, grave implications for others. I think that COVID piece is really important. One to to touch on to uh, Xi Jinping attended the meetings without masks and met with uh, President Biden, uh, even though Biden was reportedly suffering from a cold, but then further reports coming out of Beijing uh, that it may be slowly returning to a lockdown. So uh, watch this space. Uh, Didi, uh, from you, can I just get a, a minute or two of a, a wrap out of what are the signals that we should be looking out uh, for? Thanks, Tiffany. So I would say that um, the Indonesia's ASEAN chairmanship next year uh, will be talking more about aspects that ASEAN member states and its external dialogue partners can work together, which is I previously mentioned about food security. There will unlikely be bandwidth for ASEAN member states to revisit its core principle of consensus and high politics issues uh, such as the South China Sea will remain a thorn in the flesh. So the highest priority for ASEAN next year is expected to be on how to navigate problems around food security, especially if the war in Ukraine continues. Thank you. Thank you, Didi. And John, can I throw to you one other one other signal should we be looking out for? So I think I think one of the things that we haven't talked about today was uh, just how relatively well um, Indonesia ended up chairing the summit, um, chairing the G20 summit, because you know there was a, there was a lot of thought beforehand that the whole thing would fall apart in complete disarray. It didn't. Indonesia held firm against U.S. lobbying um, that Russia should be disinvited. Russia wasn't disinvited, and Indonesia did manage to get. Uh, chair's statement out of it. That chair's statement was um, brokered in large part by India. So the final language on uh, on Russia was only there because Modi managed to corral everyone around it. And I think that really does signal um, a bit of a changing of the guard because it's probably the first time that two countries, I don't like this phrase, but two countries from the global south have really managed to turn the politics of one of these big summits. I think if you take that in combination with 
the big win on loss and damage for COP. That sends some very interesting signals about next year, particularly as India now takes on the G20 presidency. So I think I think India is a big political and diplomatic winner from this and will go into next year feeling emboldened. So that's point one. Point two, I would just say, despite you know, some wins on the political front, the G Biden meeting, the fact that you did have unity on Russia, there was almost nothing really of policy substance to come out of this G20 meeting. So there, there was uh, there was an agreement on a pandemic fund, but that was much less than what the WHO had asked for. There was an agreement to bolster up um, an IMF fund, but again, short of expectations. So, you know, much of the hard yards on things like food security, health security, they still have to be fought next year. And it's as ever, it's not quite clear where the money's coming from. Thank you. On that note, uh, thank you, Hafimi, Didi, and John. I think it's fair to say that while the summits may not have delivered everything that everyone wanted, nor solved all the issues, just as you've touched on now, John, uh, but if we think about the global challenges faced and the fact that face-to-face discussions uh, is broadly positive and that more talks are going to continue, I think in the broad um, there's been um, there's been some progress in ad- addressing what are significant, uh, significant headwinds. Didi, Hafimi, it's been illuminating to hear your perspectives from Asia. Uh, and the importance placed on the summit tree. And John, thank you very much for your insights on what this means for the UK and Europe. Uh, as always, if you or your business or investment are exposed to trends and developments discussed today, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details for John, Didi, or I uh, and our sectoral teams on the GC website, www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Uh, Thank you very much for your time and attention. And as always, thanks for listening.